Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. All right, so uh, sad news. The tornadoes that obliterated uh, Kentucky, western Kentucky, um, six different states actually got hit with terrifying tornadoes. Uh, Very, very, very rare occurrence for December. It's very rare there are tornadoes in December. Uh, Unprecedented that there are tornadoes of this magnitude. So... um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Julian Assange and uh, the extradition case and the reaction of U.S. media. We got the burning of the Fox News Christmas tree. Oh, boy. Wait until you hear some of the commentary on that network. Goodness gracious. <laughs> some of the most hyperbolic nonsense I've ever heard in my life. Um, dystopian hellscape of teachers scrambling for dollar bills at a hockey game. Donald Trump... Uh, being advised to declare a national emergency and stay in office after Biden won. We'll talk about all that and much more. I only just gave you a little taste about the first half of the show here. So without further ado, let's get started. So there were devastating tornadoes that hit uh, six different states, and in specific states it did just abysmal damage. And um, I want to show you a little news clip on it here, and then we're going to come back and talk about just how mind-boggling this was and the fact that this is a very rare occurrence for the month of December. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with tornadoes will know that as a general rule, um, tornadoes mostly happen uh, in the spring when you're having this transition from uh, winter to warmer weather when those fronts collide. That's when uh, you generally get the conditions for tornadoes well, 
we're in December, dog. It's supposed to be a relatively uh, stable weather situation in the sense that it's consistently cold. Not the case, so let's take a look and then we'll discuss. Devastated. Storm chaser. From the air, you can see clearly the city of Mayfield in western Kentucky is devastated. Storm chaser Brandon Clement raced here. When I'm looking at the trees and everything is just completely sawed off, uh, buildings are completely flattened, cars are, have been picked up and thrown, uh, you know right away you're dealing with a violent tornado. The storm hit after dark Friday, leveling everything in its path. About 110 people were working overtime as production stepped up for the holidays at one of Mayfield's largest employers, a local candle factory, when the roof caved in on them. They actually recovered some bodies from the woods and were pulling them out. Uh, and that's just, uh, it's gut-wrenching to see. Homes caught fire. Trucks and cars were flipped. It ripped it off. Some even ripped to shreds. Planes at the local airport will never fly again. If you had to describe what's happened to your town, to people that don't live here, what would you say? It's gone. Across Kentucky, more destruction from a train derailment in Hopkins County to destroyed homes and businesses in Bowling Green and roofs ripped off homes in Danville. This event uh, is the worst, most devastating, most deadly tornado event in Kentucky's history. I believe that um, by the end of today or tomorrow, um, we will be north of at least 70 lives lost here in Kentucky. I think we will have lost more than 100 people, and I think it could rise significantly in those numbers. Kentucky's governor calling for those in his state who can to give blood to help. We are ground zero, and I know this community is hit. It's been hit really hard. It's going to be a tough night for a lot of people across Kentucky. The scope of what happened only now becoming clear. As many as 36 tornadoes causing destruction across six states. In Arkansas, a nursing home with 65 residents completely destroyed. At least one resident died. It just kind of stopped my heart for a second, knowing that the place had a lot of residents in it that are not physically able and capable of taking care of themselves. A deadly twister in Defiance, Missouri. Measurable structural damage to the Amazon warehouse. This is going to be a major incident. In Illinois, fatalities at an Amazon warehouse and more damage across Mississippi and Tennessee. An older woman in Kingston Springs, Tennessee, was pinned underneath a mobile home from the waist down until firefighters pulled her free. Tonight, she's in critical condition. President Biden today approving a federal disaster declaration for Kentucky, instructing FEMA and other federal agencies to move in quickly. The federal government will do everything everything it can possibly do to help. Kathy Park is at that candle factory here in Mayfield where the heartbreaking search for survivors is still underway. Let's go to her now, Kathy. Kate, late today, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir said 40 people were rescued from the candle factory. Tonight, he can only hope more lives will be saved. Many people died in that candle factory, um, and there were some fatalities as well in Illinois in the Amazon warehouse. Of course, there's a, uh, an even worse aspect of the Amazon warehouse situation. Those people were effectively forced to work overtime because of the Christmas season. And um, because of the structure of the way that Amazon warehouse works, 
Uh, the people inside are independent contractors, so they didn't even know how many people were in there when you had the issue arise and when you had the building collapse or at least partially collapse. And so there are some fatalities in there as well. Again, six different states. It appears like uh, Kentucky got the worst of it. Western Kentucky, Mayfield, Kentucky got the worst of it. Um, that's not to say that other states didn't have major structural damage. Uh, the extent of these tornadoes is just absolutely astonishing. They, um, they may have broken a record. They may have broken a record for how long tornadoes of this power were on the ground. And we don't even have all the facts yet in terms of how strong they were. Minimum, they were F3. It's possible that some were all the way up to F5. And, of course, they hit at night, and that makes them ever more dangerous and ever more terrifying. Um, so let me give you a little bit more. This is from the Associated Press. The calendar said December, but the warm, moist air screamed of springtime at an eastbound storm front guided by a La Nina weather pattern into the mismatch, into that mismatch, and it spawned tornadoes that killed dozens over five U.S. states. By the way, the death toll is likely going to rise above 100 when all said and done. Tornadoes in December are unusual but not unheard of. Uh, but the ferocity and path length of Friday night's tornadoes likely put them in a category of their own, meteorologists say. One of the twisters, if it is confirmed to have been just one, likely broke a nearly 100-year-old record for how long a tornado stayed on the ground in a path of destruction, experts said. One word, remarkable. Unbelievable would be another. Uh, another, said Northern Illinois University meteorology professor Victor Gensini. It was really a late spring type of setup in the middle of December. Warm weather was a crucial ingredient in the tornado outbreak, but whether climate change is a factor is not quite as clear, meteorologists say. Scientists say figuring out how climate change is affecting the frequency of tornadoes is complicated and their understanding is still evolving, but they do say the atmospheric conditions that gave rise to such outbreaks are intensifying in the winter as the planet warms, and Tornado Alley is shifting farther east away from the Kansas-Oklahoma area and into states where Friday's killers hit. So um, that's a, a real interesting point, and I've read a number of articles about this event, and that seems to be the connecting tissue where they all agree that um, Tornado Alley appears to be shifting further and further east, and so it's shifting more into the regions that got hit um, with this outbreak. Illinois, Mississippi, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, that previously, you know, Oklahoma and Kansas were the place, and parts of Texas, of course, were, um, you know, Tornado Alley, where there would be a lot of tornadoes. Um, it looks like it's shifting east. And again, they say we had late spring conditions in the middle of December. Now, the reason why they say, look, we, we can't definitively say this is linked to climate change, or, you know, they can't say with any amount of certainty is because they don't have nearly as good records on tornadoes going back. Um, for whatever reason, uh, other aspects of the weather, there's uh, more concrete records of it going back more and more. Um, but there's at least speculation at this point that this is what we're dealing with here. And again, one of the things that really caught my eye, um, I, I was watching something on this on the Weather Channel, and they showed the chart of when the most tornadoes hit. And guys, it is, it's not even close. It's, I, I want to say 80% in spring. You know, I think April is the month where 
there are the most tornadoes. But, you know, March, April, May in that area, even June, um, there's a lot of tornadoes. Very, very uncommon for December, not only to have tornadoes, but to have tornadoes of this power that were on the ground for this long. Again, most unprecedented um, tornado outbreak in Kentucky's history, and Mayfield is just absolutely obliterated. Uh, there's some drone footage of this stuff that is just astonishing. You're, I'm surprised the death toll, when all said and done, they say it's going to be over 100. I'm surprised the thing wasn't over 1,000, given that there were entire towns that were totally and completely leveled. So we're seeing this on other fronts as well. You know, hurricane season appears to be shifting slightly, um, and the amount of damage being done uh, is, is rising. We seem to have these supposed to be once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-lifetime uh, hurricanes that hit every year, every other year now. So not a good sign, that's for sure. And you add this to all the other uh, political disasters that we're currently dealing with and economic disasters and the pandemic, and it's just uh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So, you know, needless to say, my heart goes out to everybody who was impacted by this, and I hope that Biden is is – correct and telling the truth and saying that, you know, FEMA is mobilizing and they're going to do everything they possibly can because we know that in other disasters that hasn't necessarily been the case. And um, just something that you hate to see and wish everybody the best who's dealing with it. And I I wish I had some answers for you guys, but outside of the obvious things in regards to climate change, I don't have any answers for you guys. And as they said, even though it's very possible that it's linked to climate change, you can't say 100% definitively. So what do you do? What do you do in a situation like this? It's a disaster. Okay, next. Julian Assange um, had an extradition hearing in the UK. This is whether or not he's going to be sent to the United States. And it was a disaster in many respects. Julian Assange has a stroke in Belmarsh prison. Fiance blames extreme stress caused by U.S. extradition battle. Julian Assange had a stroke in Belmarsh prison, his fiance Stella Morris revealed. WikiLeaks publisher 50 is being held on, a, on remand in the maximum security jail. It is believed the mini stroke was triggered by the stress of the U.S. court action. Stroke happened at the time of high court appearance and video link in October, Julian Assange, they continue and say Julian Assange had a stroke. The WikiLeaks publisher, who's being held on remand in maximum security jail while fighting extradition to America, was left with a drooping right eyelid, memory problems, and signs of neurological damage. So they go on to say that the doctor used the light to get the reaction when you put, the, put it in their eye and see what happens with the pupil, and he was just, like, non-responsive. Um, there's a number of things to say about this. I mean, previously, the reason why the extradition was denied is because the U.K. court system said, hey, the U.S. court system is notoriously barbaric, and given his condition, we absolutely cannot send him to the United States because we don't know about the care he's going to get, and perhaps he'll die rather quickly in a U.S. prison. Um, well, now that seems to have been proven correct in a very clear way, but the extradition was approved. 
so now he's going to be sent to the United States of America. That is not good. Listen, we've covered the stories. We know, as a matter of fact, that the CIA was plotting to kill him, to murder him. How can you have a situation where the dude had a stroke due to extreme stress about U.S. extradition and the CIA is plotting to kill him, and now you say, well, it's okay, he can be sent to the U.S.? I'm sure he'll get some fair treatment there. I mean, it's beyond absurd. Now, to give some more information on this, and I'm sure all of you know this, but if anybody's you know, new to this topic or new to this channel, I'll just brush them up on it. This case has absolutely nothing to do with the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton and the DNC emails and stuff like that. This case is all about um, Chelsea Manning giving Julian Assange classified top-secret information. But the reason Chelsea Manning did that is to expose U.S. war crimes that were happening in the Middle East. And Chelsea looked at it, saw, thought, I have a conscience. I can't look at a video of U.S. soldiers murdering journalists, circling around murdering first responders, and laughing about it. And so she gave that video to Julian Assange. Julian Assange uh, you know, published it on WikiLeaks. And then now the U.S. empire was embarrassed and they were exposed. And as a direct result of a journalist doing journalism, a reporter doing reporting on an important story, well, now they're throwing the book at him and they're trying to make an example of him. And make no mistake about it, with the charges that they're going to throw at Julian Assange, this would be the death of the First Amendment. It was the Obama administration that famously said, listen, we might even want to go after Julian Assange, but we can't go after Julian Assange because if we do that, we're also implicating the New York Times and the Washington Post and everybody who ended up running that story. So, you know, he was the publisher. New York Times and Washington Post published it too. Should we take down New York Times and Washington Post because they published a story that's noteworthy? That's something that should be in the news? We can't do it. We can't set that precedent because that precedent is the destruction of journalism in, in America and it's ushering in an era of outright tyranny when it comes to news and information. Well, now they're going to send him to the U.S., and Lord only knows what they're going to throw at him. Listen, we've discussed it before, but um, Edward Snowden, I, I remember talking to Glenn Greenwald in like 2013 or 2014, and one of the questions I asked him when I interviewed him was, um, listen, why wouldn't Edward Snowden come back home? We know why he did what he did. We know he's a whistleblower. We know his argument is, hey, the government, you have a protection from unreasonable search and seizure from the government, and the government is in no uncertain terms violating that. They are violating the Constitution. They are breaking the law. I'm exposing it. We know that that's his argument. Why can't he come back in court, make that argument, win, and then he's a hero? And Glenn Greenwald said to me, uh, he's actually not allowed to make that argument in court. He's not allowed to make a public good defense because they're throwing the Espionage Act at him. So if you're not allowed to make that defense, what the hell is your defense going to be? There is no other defense other than the truth there. And so he can't come back and make that argument. So he knows he's not going to have a fair trial. So he can't come back to the U.S. Well, they might throw similar things at Julian Assange here. You're not allowed to say that you did this for the public good. You're not allowed to say you're a journalist. You're not allowed to say you're a reporter. You're not allowed to say it's the U.S. government that's breaking, uh, violating the Constitution and breaking the law. So this is, um, this is beyond criminal on the part of the U.S. government. And the thing that I always have trouble wrapping my mind around is like, do you guys think the rest of us don't have eyes? Do you guys think we're not capable of reading and, and understanding what's going on here and, and following the trail? Because 
Daniel Ellsberg himself, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, who's now a hero because he showed the war crimes we were committing in Vietnam, Daniel Ellsberg himself says Julian Assange is exactly like him. So how do you have a situation where one guy in due time is viewed as a hero, and now this guy who did the same thing, he's viewed as a pariah, and you're going to persecute him and prosecute him, and now he has a stroke as a direct result of the extreme stress brought about by the situation? This is totally unacceptable. And shame on the UK for being a little puppet vassal state to the US here. Apparently behind the scenes, the US gave reassurances to the UK. He's going to be, we'll take good care of him. No, taking good care of him would be letting him go and giving him an apology and restitution. So now uh, it's all collapsing down. Lord only knows what they're going to find him guilty of, whatever kind of show trial they'll put on. But this is absolutely devastating. And listen, we're going to get to another story on this, but for the media, they're not saying anything on this that's remotely sane. And they used to cry and whine and bitch and moan under the Trump administration that Trump is destroying journalism in America because he's a meanie to Jim Acosta. Well, now you actually have the destruction of journalism in America, and they have nothing to say about it except to cheer it on. So mainstream media in this country is just packed full of charlatans and conmen and frauds. And it's never been more clear than when their profession is directly under attack and they have nothing to say about it against it. If anything, they're cheering it on because they're in the club. They're part of the club. They're comfy. They never rock the boat. Well, here you did. You have somebody who's a journalist who did what a journalist should do, and he's getting the book thrown at him as a result of it. Free Julian Assange, free him now. Listen, we, uh, Crystal Ball and Brianna Joy Gray and Katie Halper and Marion Williamson did this live stream for Stephen Donziger the other night. I sent in a video uh, to show some support. And it was the day after that live stream, thankfully, uh, we learned that Donziger's uh, sentence was changed to, okay, go back to house arrest for the remaining five months or whatever it is. Now, it's, it's a, he's already in house arrest for 800 days, and then he was sent to prison. Well, now it's, it's good. It's a step in the right direction that he's back under house arrest as opposed to being in prison. Still set him free, but at least there was a little bit of movement in the right direction on that case. Well, this is just movement in the wrong direction, and it's absolutely devastating. And unfortunately, I have zero faith in the U.S. justice system that our right-wing courts are going to understand that the First Amendment is in danger here. Listen, honestly, I'll say it. This might be a controversial take, but I think if previously, if this case had gotten to the Supreme Court and Scalia was on the court, Scalia would have said, this is, we have to let this guy go. Because Scalia, for all of his flaws, and he had many, he's generally a right-wing hack, but the one area where he was relatively consistent was free speech. This is a hardcore right-wing ideologue and partisan who said, listen, uh, burning the American flag is absolutely free speech, and this is First Amendment protected, so what am I going to do? Even if I want to ban it, I can't. So you have to allow it. Now I have zero faith in, forget the Supreme Court, but any other lower courts in this country that are packed full of right-wing ideologues. I doubt that they have the uh, wherewithal and knowledge to understand that the precedent that sets destroys the First Amendment. So, by the way, the person who was involved in mucking up all the charges against Julian Assange is now a proven criminal and admitted liar. And he said, I made it all up. Whatever charges they were mucking up against him in the first place. 
And there's been, again, no talk about that in U.S. media at all. We needed to use, like, a Dutch outlet or some shit in order to, to report that to you guys. And this stuff just keeps getting worse and worse. Free Julian Assange, free him now. I'll keep you guys updated on the case, but this is not a good development. All right, let's keep going. So Morning Joe um, talked about the Julian Assange extradition, which has now been approved. He's going to be sent from the U.K. to the U.S. Uh, He had a stroke because of the stress related to the extradition. Um, It's funny because they originally said we can't extradite him because the the U.S. prison system is too barbaric and we're not sure his health will be looked after. Then he has a stroke over the stress of potentially being sent to the U.S., and they're like, okay, now we'll send him. That makes absolutely no sense. So Morning Joe, in all their infinite smugness and incorrectness, they go on air here. They repeatedly smear Julian Assange. They repeatedly lie, and they botch the most basic facts. Take a look. Uh, of smoke surrounding Julian Assange. Of course, there were the charges in in Sweden that were subsequently dropped. There uh, is the the hacking uh, and and his vendetta against Hillary Clinton. Uh, There's information uh, that was released that showed uh, military malfeasance uh, by the United States. But, you know, it's so interesting that it used to be uh, the far left to oppose George W. Bush's wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, who made this guy a hero uh, under the guise of the First Amendment. And, and then when he started leaking information against Hillary Clinton, uh, it became the Trump right that suddenly held Julian Assange. So, but let's just look at the politics of this. As a prosecutor, you're given this case, and you've got a guy who's stolen thousands of documents Uh, pages of highly classified national security documents, release them to the world, uh, and and in so doing, um, put the lives of U.S. troops, of people who were working with the United States, allies, collaborators in war zones, in the gravest of danger. Uh, under, uh, Under any scenario, you take politics out of it, and, and this is an open and shut case. This is not the Pentagon Papers. This wasn't Times editors rifling through documents, figuring out what could be released and what couldn't be released and explaining it. This was a guy that got stolen documents and gave it to the world. This is a pretty simple case. It's very straightforward. And the beauty of a trial, Joe, is that you narrow all of the extraneous stuff to the charges that are locked they're there against the defendant. And the charges in this case are that he was trying to hack into our military information that protects not just our country, but all the men and women in uniform around the world. This is really serious stuff. All of that is untrue. All of that is untrue. He was trying to hack into our military information. He was not. He was not at all. Chelsea Manning approached him She had access to the classified top-secret information, and the reason she gave it to him, the reason she gave it to a journalist and a reporter to expose it is because she's a whistleblower, and she realized, oh, my God, U.S. troops in the Middle East just massacred innocent people, journalists, and then circled around and killed the first responders and were laughing about it. Chelsea Manning was exposing war crimes. 
She's the definition of a whistleblower. Julian Assange took the information and published it because he's a journalist, and that's what journalists do. If they're given something that is noteworthy and newsworthy and important for the public to know because the U.S. government is killing innocent people with our money in our name, well, then that guy is just doing his job. And also, by the way, it's pretty heroic because knowing how tyrannical and dictatorial the U.S. empire can be, he probably knows they're going to come after him for doing the right thing. There's one part where they're right there, where Claire McCaskill goes, this case is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. You're right, but not in the way you think you are. You think it's open and shut in order for him to get locked up. It's actually open and shut for him to be let go. And they should apologize to him and pay him restitution. Let's go through some of the other arguments. I love the uh, bullshit, well, there's a lot of smoke here. There's a lot of smoke here. There's a lot of smoke. Well, how very um, you know, judicious and, and scientific of you. What a great argument against Julian Assange. I see a lot of smoke. They're talking about a BS mucked up um, sexual assault charge that was against him, which was already dropped. By, by the way, I wonder why or how that was mucked up against him. The other thing is, one, one of the guys who was the, a key witness in the Julian Assange case against Julian Assange literally came out of it. I made it all up. I'm a fraudster. I'm a con, con artist. And he's got, a, you know, a rap sheet longer than the Bible. There's a lot of smoke for Julian Assange's. Then they talk about, well, he did the hacking against Hillary Clinton. Uh, he didn't hack at all. Again, he was given documents. He was given information about how the DNC was trying to rig the primary behind the scenes against Bernie Sanders, and that is very, very newsworthy information. You know, if you care about freedom and democracy in what's supposed to be a representative democracy, it's kind of noteworthy that they're trying to rig a primary now, isn't it? So he released that information, and all of a sudden, you know, it, it's blame the messenger. He didn't rig the primary. He didn't do that. He's just showing everybody how the sausage is made and what went on behind the scenes. And, that's, and he's the criminal? No, the criminal would be the DNC, rigging the election against Bernie Sanders. By the way, don't take my word for any of this. Go check. Go look at the documents. Go look at what we know came out. Then um, I, I love the way he, he smoothed over and took the rough edges off of what really happened and what Julian Assange really exposed. By the way, this case has nothing to do with 2016, nothing to do with the DNC, nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. It's all about uh, WikiLeaks exposing war crimes. Um, Joe Scarborough describes that as um, military malfeasance against the United States. Military malfeasance against the United States. Look at the soft language for the U.S. massacring journalists and then killing the first responders and laughing about it. He showed some military malfeasance by the United States. Would Joe Scarborough describe an Iranian war crime or a Russian war crime or a Chinese war crime by saying, uh, military malfeasance against the Russians, military malfeasance against the Chinese? What a little hack weasel we're dealing with here. Then, of course, he makes the argument, which goes over so well in elite establishment circles of, well, the far left like him, and now the Trump right likes him, so, you know, he must be doing something wrong. I don't give a shit who likes him. I don't care if Joe Scarborough's grandma likes him. I don't care if Ted Kaczynski likes him. I don't give a fuck who likes him. I care about the actual facts of the case and what went down, which clearly he doesn't because he botches virtually every single one of them and smears Julian Assange repeatedly. He stole thousands of classified national security documents and released them. He did not. He did not. He was given the documents by a whistleblower who realized we were committing war crimes. That's what happened. And he ran him because that's what a journalist does. By the way, you know who else ran him? 
New York Times, Washington Post, many establishment media outlets. Under the Obama administration, they said, even if we want to go after Julian Assange, we can't go after Julian Assange, because then we also have to go after the Washington Post and the New York Times and other established press outlets, because they ran the story too. That is literally exactly what Julian Assange did. Julian Assange did not hack in. Julian Assange did not steal the information. It was given to him by somebody who has a conscience. How many ways can, this, can they be wrong in this one short clip? How many ways can they be wrong? He put the lives of U.S. troops and allies in the gravest of danger. Now, notice something. They did not say uh, X number of people were killed and died as a result of the information that Julian Assange released. Why didn't they say that? Why didn't they make that argument? They can't make that argument because it's totally bogus. Nobody died. Nobody was attacked. Nobody was hurt. And so instead, now they say, well, theoretically, it's possible that maybe something could have happened because of the information that he released, even though it didn't happen. What a complete nonsense dodge and BS argument coming from these smug, arrogant pricks. And believe you me, as a general rule, Morning Joe is conventional wisdom city. Like, that's all they do there, spew conventional wisdom right back to each other's faces. Nobody but, like, the most elite assholes in D.C. and on Wall Street enjoy watching Morning Joe. Um, and then the most hilarious part, they go, this is an open and shut case. Again, I agree with that part, but just in the exact opposite way of how they mean it. They mean open and shut, lock them up. I mean open and shut, let them go. Um, he says, this isn't the Pentagon Papers. It is almost literally exactly the Pentagon Papers. In the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg released the information showing the United States was massacring innocent civilians in Vietnam, just destroying, uh, murdering landless peasants on a regular basis, using napalm and Agent Orange, just indiscriminately bombing and murdering and destroying. And he was a hero for exposing that. And now we all recognize Daniel Ellsberg as a hero. Julian Assange, it's the exact same thing. Chelsea Manning gave the information of U.S. war crimes. Julian Assange released it. This is why they're throwing the book at him. And he says, this isn't the Pentagon Papers. It absolutely is the Pentagon Papers. You know who agrees with me? Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers guy. He's like, this is exactly like the Pentagon Papers. These guys are such frauds. The most infuriating part of all of this is that during the Trump administration, the Morning Joe people went on air and said, oh, Trump hates the First Amendment. He hates a free press. He hates journalism. He hates reporting. And if he had the opportunity, he would lock up every single one of us. He'd come lock us up right now. So these guys are cosplaying as the defenders of journalism and the First Amendment and the Constitution and feigning concern and care. Why? Because Trump was a dick to Jim Acosta, and he says the words fake news a lot. So therefore, oh man, he's destroying the First Amendment. But here we have the actual destruction of the First Amendment, which is a terrible, tyrannical, dictatorial precedent, and they support that precedent. They support the destruction of the First Amendment. Now, by the way, what they're saying isn't even true about Trump, that that was his biggest threat to journalism, being mean to elite assholes. His biggest threat to journalism was when he cracked down on Julian Assange. He kept the case against Julian Assange. So in that sense, he is destroying journalism. He was trying to destroy journalism. But they had nothing to say about that. In fact, they support that. These guys are absolutely shameless. Complete 
shameless clowns, idiots, charlatans, frauds, con men. It's just, honestly, it's just embarrassing. Even, like, look, if the, the bare minimum that anybody can say, this is the bare minimum that's acceptable in this conversation. I don't like Julian Assange personally. I think he's a prick. I think he's kind of weird. But, look, you can't throw the book at him and you can't lock him up because the fact of the matter is if you do that, you have destroyed journalism. You have destroyed the First Amendment. You can no longer have noteworthy information that the public should know be released to journalists to then release it to the public because then they just throw charges at the journalists and say you're not allowed to expose that. But they can't even muster that. They can't even muster that. Um, This is beyond pathetic. It's beyond pathetic. And you have U.S. so-called journalists actively cheering on the death of journalism, which really goes to show you they're not journalists. These people are paid stenographers to power centers, whether it's big money, financial institutions, capital, military, industrial complex, Democratic Party, Republican Party. Throughout U.S. establishment media, obviously, you have a whole spectrum of interests that are being represented by mouthpieces. But the, the one perspective that's completely left out of the equation is truth and honesty and fairness and reporting correct information. You don't get any of that there, none of it. You get some of that in new media, but you also get psychopaths who are total conspiracy theorists in new media. So, but this is just beyond disgusting, terrifying the precedent this sets, if indeed it goes down how we fear it's going to go down, and the entire time it's raucous applause from all these cackling hyenas, these snakes, these idiots on MSNBC. This is shameful. I mean, you want to talk about being totally incapable of doing your job effectively? None of these people should be on TV. It's a sick joke they are. Okay. Okay, let's continue. So Fox News um, is losing their minds because they, uh, their Christmas tree was burned. So let me go ahead and show you, show you a video here. This is getting a lot of play online. Look at what they think the charges should be for somebody, by the way, who's totally mentally ill lighting their tree on fire. Arson is only a felony. You can only be held if it's a felony. If the suspect tries to harm a person or commits a hate crime, and apparently lighting a Christmas tree on fire is not a hate crime. But it is. Even though a lot of people could have been injured? Yeah, but here's the thing. This is not a hate crime against us, against Fox News. Uh, Here's the thing. What we do know for sure and we don't know the guy's motivation. Uh, but a judge could ask and be under suspicion and keep him locked up. Well, he might have. But here's, the, here's what we do know. According to the New York Post, which is co-owned with us, that Christmas tree was half a million dollars. I know. So this guy tortures a half a million dollars worth of property, and he gets to walk? Uh, by the way, I do not at all believe that $500,000 number. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the entire process of, you know, 
bringing the tree in and paying for the tree and setting it up and all that stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if that accounted to, you know, 60,000, 70,000, something like that. Uh, but 500,000, no, I think that's a wildly inflated number. But anyway, I digress from that point. The Brian Kilmeade argument is hilarious. Who's to say it's not a hate crime against us, against Fox News? Yes, noted protected class in the law, Fox News hosts. Come on, dog. Come on. Now, listen, whether or not you think this guy should have gotten out on bail is a separate conversation. I mean, we absolutely need bail reform because bail is nothing other than a tax on the poor. So the whole idea is if you commit a heinous crime um, or if you commit even a crime that might not be heinous, let's say, uh, and you know, they, they tell you you have to pay X amount in order to get out. It's only rich people who can pay to get out. So in other words, a rich person can commit a much more heinous crime and get out because they could afford bail, but a poor person could commit the same crime and not get out because they can't afford the bail. So it's, bail is not, you have to understand, bail is not necessarily linked directly to just how terrible the crime is and whether or not they should be able to get out. A lot of it is just like, let's make sure to keep the poors under lock and key, and let's make sure to let the rich out. So if you want to change the system and make it solely based on if you commit X, Y, or Z crime, then you can potentially get out. But if you commit these worst ones, then you can't. Well, that's a separate conversation. That's a much more reasonable conversation. But that's not the way the bail system works. And that's a, you know, a, a misconception as to how it does work that they're sort of uh, you know, putting out here now. So look, don't get me wrong. It's a crime. It's dangerous. Uh, definitely people could have gotten hurt. Thankfully, nobody did get hurt. Um, but the fact of the matter is, the guy is massively, massively mentally ill. The cops have had previous run-ins with him before. They know how mentally ill he is. So it's not driven by hate. It's not politically motivated. They, he probably didn't even know that it was technically the Fox News tree. He's just mentally ill and on the street, and he needs help. He needs housing. He needs medicine. He needs counseling. He needs those things. That's what really should be given to him. But, by the way, we are just getting started with how insane Fox News has been on this story since it affects them personally. This is a classic like conservative trope here. Since this is an issue that directly affects them, they're all in on it. So take a look at this. In the Independent, hate crime, Fox News covers its Christmas tree fire for 36 hours straight as major news story. The network's 50-foot tree was set on fire by a man who was arrested shortly afterwards. Wow. 36 hours. Here's my favorite. Fox News contributor compares Christmas tree fire to Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, which brought us into World War II, where we fought the Japanese and we fought Nazi Germany, Hitler. Pearl Harbor, they compared this to. I'm surprised they didn't throw a 9-11 in there uh, for good measure. Maybe one of them did, and we just missed it. But we got, it's a hate crime. We got compared to Pearl Harbor. We got 36 hours straight of coverage. Um, melting down over it. Tucker did a segment where he claims there's like an epidemic of Christmas trees being lit on fire. And this is basically an attack on religion and an attack on Christianity and an attack on Americanness. I'm going to say this for the 14,000th time. They always talk about the culture war because all they have is the culture war. What's Fox News going to do when it comes to an argument about raising taxes on the wealthy? Uh, an issue where they're solidly on the side of like 20% or 30% of Americans. What are they going to do? They want to take that fight on? 
Do they want to take on the fight on universal health care and proudly stand on the side with, again, 20 or 30 percent of Americans? So side with big business, side with industry, side with corruption. What are, they, what are they going to do? Are they going to lean into all of these areas where they know they're at a massive disadvantage, politically speaking, whether it's an economic issue, a union issue, a foreign policy issue? Now, don't get me wrong. They do talk about those things, and they do reliably come out on the wrong side of those things. But the 36-hour straight of Christmas tree coverage is because that's the only card they have to play, dog. If they go all in on the culture war, they revive the war on Christmas. They compare this shit to Pearl Harbor. They talk about it's a hate crime. They're just changing the conversation to their terms. And their terms are, you know, Americanness is under attack and we are the guardians and the protectors of Americanness. And look, the fact of the matter is, this is the saddest trick in the world, but it actually works in many respects. Because, uh, you know, the left, of course, has no problem following them right down that rabbit hole. And then... Um, not having the conversations that we should be having, the conversations around universal pre-K and free child care and free elder care and expanding Medicare. And, I mean, we still have that bill, the Build Back Better bill, that hasn't been voted on yet and is, you know, languishing and going nowhere. And there are no, like, Biden isn't vocally pushing for it. The left in Congress isn't vocally pushing for it. Uh, they've already stripped it to the high heavens. But, like, even the few remaining popular provisions, nobody's screaming, screaming that through a megaphone on the mountaintop and letting everybody know, here's what we stand for, while these idiots are just comparing a Christmas tree burning to Pearl Harbor. Nope. None of that. Uh, the national dialogue is such a mess, and this is such a good example of it here. I mean, I really think that this impacted them so much just because it was, it was at their studio. And so they felt like, oh, my God, now, now this stuff is coming directly for us. And so they hype up the coverage. They melt down nonstop and um, change the conversation completely. It's all they have, man. Don't let the culture war rot your brain. I've seen many decent people have the culture war completely rot their brain and change their perspectives and take their eye off the ball of the important issues. There are a lot of very important issues in this country. Probably the most important is corruption because that leads to the failure on every political front and economic front. But you got corruption, you got climate change, you got low wages, you got lack of health care, you got extreme poverty, you got homelessness, you got all these massive issues. And we're talking about whether or not a Christmas tree that burned for like 10 minutes is equivalent to Pearl Harbor or a hate crime. 36 hours of coverage. By the way, it's a go, ch go check, guys. Go look this up. We'll see. How much time was spent on Fox News talking about the new report that just came out in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which we covered on this show, which showed there is a literal slavery ring, actual slavery, in South Georgia right now? We covered that story. I gave you all the details. I gave you all the charges that are against them. I gave you exactly what the situation looks like, what the quarters look like, exactly how they got away with having a literal slavery ring in 2021 in the United States of America. Now, that, my friends, is a story that deserves 36-hour coverage if you have a 24-hour news network. They, I, I, they probably didn't even mention it on air, and if it did get mentioned, maybe it was like a 30-second or minute-long segment in passing, and they sanitized it. But no, instead of talking about that, which is arguably the most serious issue, the Christmas tree burned. It was on fire. And this is an attack on all Christians and all Americans and on Fox News. It's a hate crime. It's like Pearl Harbor. We're going to talk about it nonstop. 
That's their priorities. Look, I'm not perfect on this show. Everybody knows that. But for the love of God, at least my priorities are a hell of a lot better than theirs. I think the literal slavery ring in the United States of America in 2021 deserves more coverage than a fucking tree burning. And it got put out immediately, and nobody got hurt, and the guy's just mentally ill. Oh, Fox News, where would we be without you? A lot better off. Okay. Let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. One more, and then we'll take a break. Okay. So, um, there was a Trump memo, a White House memo, that was just released as part of this January 6th um, commission. Now, listen, I've, I've been clear with my position on that from up front. I largely think it's a waste of time. I know that that's a controversial take in left circles, but let me explain. The reason why it's largely a waste of time is because we already know what happened. I mean, the goddamn thing is on video. So we know what happened. We know who's guilty. We know who deserves charges. And those people are being charged. Now, I don't want Patriot Act 2.0 to strip away people's civil liberties, and to destroy the Constitution further, I want to repeal the original Patriot Act, which was abused in a thousand different ways and did destroy the Constitution in many respects. So repeal the original Patriot Act, don't do another Patriot Act, and don't give the U.S. intelligence agencies and the deep state, for lack of a better term, more money, more funding, so they can continue to lie and they can continue to mislead us and they can continue to enact an agenda that is very unpopular and continue a new Cold War and things of that nature. So that's why I I thought the January 6th thing was, it's just, it's theater for the public. It's a way, and by the way, Joe Manchin actually admitted this. There was a great article on this where he said, I think it was over the January 6th commission. He says, listen, we got to give the Democratic base something, some sort of symbolic victory, so, so that we don't have to do any of the substantive policies that improve everybody's life. So why not just... He was trying to get Republicans, just come on board, let's do the January 6th thing, and then we can have the theater, and the left get satiated because Democrats can scold Republicans and say, oh, you're so bad. And then, you know, it, the eyes off the ball, and people aren't talking about universal child care, people aren't talking about pre-K, people aren't talking about expanding Medicare, people aren't talking about any of the substantive policy changes as part of Build Back Better. This, literally, this was like the strategy, the strategy of corrupt corporate Democrats to try to, you know, get the left to pay attention to the theater as opposed to the substance. Okay. So the January 6th thing, we have it on video. We know who's guilty. You don't need an investigation. The investigation is watching the videos and going, that person's guilty. Let's find them and let's lock them up because they committed crimes. Okay. Well, um, there is one respect in which I was incorrect about the January 6th commission. I thought, well, nothing else is going to come out of this. We already know what happened. Well, turns out there is one thing that came out of this. Namely, we got this memo which shows the conversations that were being had in the White House um, around the time. And Mark Meadows, who's, who was Trump's chief of staff at the time, um, submitted this email to the January 6th committee. And look at what it said in the email. It was a PowerPoint slide. Options for January 6th. 
VP Pence seeks Republican electors over the objections of Democrats in states where fraud, so-called fraud, occurred. VP Pence rejects the electors from states where fraud occurred, causing the election to be decided by remaining electoral votes. VP Pence delays the decision in order to allow for a vetting and subsequent counting of all the legal paper ballots. So this is them saying, on January 6th, um, have Mike Pence like block Biden being approved and certified as president of the United States. And these are the options they're giving him for this. Okay, but I have more. Recommendations. Brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference in the election. So in other words, do the Hillary Clinton trick and say, uh, instead of saying Russia, say like, it was Venezuela rigged the election. And so now we're going to brief Republican senators and congressmen and say, there was foreign interference, so you can't approve Biden as president. Declare national security emergency. So in other words, block Biden from becoming president by just declaring there's a national security emergency, so Trump needs to stay in office and delay approving Biden. Foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. Declare electronic voting in all states invalid. Throw out all electronic voting. I think what they were actually trying to say is all mail-in voting, but they wrote electronic. But either way, they're trying to say, just don't count the votes that we don't like because certain types of votes went overwhelmingly Democratic. So just exclude those and say, well, that we think they're fraudulent. This is insanity. Legal and genuine paper ballot counts or constitutional remedy delegated to Congress. So... These are the recommendations that they're giving Donald Trump about January 6th. And what they boil down to is Mike Pence can and should block the seating of Joe Biden. Here are the ways in which we think he can do that. And here are the ways in which we think you, Mr. President, can take the initiative and you can say we're delaying Joe Biden becoming president. And the scariest ones here are just declare all electronic voting in all states invalid. Nah. They went to Biden, so therefore we think they're illegitimate, they're fraudulent, so we're just going to throw them out. This is how atrocities happen, guys. It's the entire time as you are doing the immoral, unethical, illegal act, you vociferously accuse the other side. They're the ones who are doing it, and we need to just remedy it by doing our tyrannical thing here. That's what this is. Declare a national security emergency? So in other words, they wanted Trump. Mark Meadows was casually floating the idea of Trump going out there saying, there are a lot of questions around this election. We already know that. We've seen all the talk. We know all the problems. We know it's not a legitimate election. Therefore, time to declare a national security emergency until we figure out what the hell is going on. And so I'm delaying Joe Biden being seated as president of the United States of America. This was openly being discussed behind the scenes. We dodged a massive bullet because Mike Pence, for all of his flaws, thought, listen, I can't, I can't go up there in a largely symbolic meeting and be like, I'm not allowing Joe Biden to be seated as president. He didn't have the balls to do that. For all of his flaws, he at least did the bare minimum of like, let's transition power. Um, and the other reason we dodged the bullet is because Trump, honestly, he was just too much of a pussy to follow through on it. He probably felt like, well, what happens if they, if they push back? What happens if I get dragged out of the office in handcuffs or whatever? And so he, he backed off of it. But these things were being openly discussed. There are literal memos about how you can override a Democratic election and therefore commit what? Do a coup. This would have been a coup. 
And I don't want to hear anybody who's silly enough to still buy into the conspiracy theories. You're just wrong. I don't know how else to say. I'll be as straightforward as possible. We've had over 60 court cases. Donald Trump and his team lost almost every single one. They only won like one case, and that one case was over some procedural bullshit, which wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election and wouldn't have changed the outcome of the state. You had the Arizona audit, which was supposed to be the linchpin of like, see, we'll prove that there was fraud here. Joe Biden increased his vote count in the Arizona audit. You have Trump-appointed judges who looked at the evidence and laughed it out of court and said, there's no fraud here. They were this close to trying to do a coup. It's just the fact that um, Mike Pence had a single shred of integrity to do the right thing and approve the result, and Donald Trump is too much of a bitch to put his neck out there on his own. But look, it's... uh, It's scary because it shows you how much our so-called institutions, which are already shredded in a thousand different ways, shows you how they're just illusory. You know, they they function on the goodwill of the people to continue to do the kabuki theater. And so virtually every president to this point has been like, yeah, all right, I lost, whatever, moving on. But a thin-skinned person with a dictatorial instinct, we were that close to that not happening. This end of democracy type stuff here. So, really, thank thank our lucky stars that we barely got out of this one as bad as it was. I mean, January 6th was terrible. The riot was terrible. Um, It could have been a lot worse based on how rabid Trump's most hardcore believers are and based on how thin-skinned Trump is and how petty and narcissistic he is. It actually could have went a lot worse. But I I will say this does not bode well for the future of American democracy. It really doesn't because we're already at this unstable point. Well, Trump just spawned a thousand different um, Trump clones moving forward. And at some point, one of them probably get elected in the U.S. as a Republican down the road. And what happens when we come across a guy who isn't as big of a pussy? What happens then? Tell you what happens. It gets even uglier. So... There's a wake-up call for a lot of people, man, that's for sure. And um, we were this close, this close. Memos openly discussing a coup. And, you know, really sort of cloaking it in the legal language of, like, serious people talk, you know. And I I think they, they might even be silly enough to believe their own, like, serious person legal talk. So they don't even, they wouldn't even think of it as, like, we're doing a coup. Some of them would, but a lot of them don't. They think, no, we're, we're righting a wrong here. We're righting an injustice of Biden stealing the election or whatever. Very, very, very unstable political situation in the U.S. right now, needless to say. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you, including... Teachers scramble for dollar bills at a hockey game in a dystopian nightmare that is now America. Stay right there, y'all.
right, we are back, bitches. Here we go. Let's talk about the dystopian nightmare happening in our country right now. I have some notes on this one. Let me pull it up. So um, the Premier Center is an arena in one of the Dakotas. I forget which one. I think North Dakota, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, and there was a, a hockey game. I, th- I think this is minor league hockey. I'm not totally sure, but I think that's what it is. Um, and after the first period, they had a bunch of local teachers come on the ice, and they participated in the first ever Dash for Cash. So teachers had to scramble and fight for $5,000 in dollar bills, and they were trying to get as many dollar bills as possible so they can afford, for their kids, supplies. Take a look at this. I think the most disturbing thing about this to me is that not everybody is disturbed by it. There was some local reporter who was tweeting about it and was sort of like jovial and casually, nonchalantly explaining it and saying, teachers are going to get some supplies for their kiddos. Hooray! Um, This is dystopian nightmare stuff here, man. This is fail state stuff. You have a bunch of teachers on their hands and knees, scrambling for dollar bills to afford supplies for their kids. Why doesn't everybody look at this as just a complete and utter moral and ethical failing on the part of society? There's a number of, like, little thought experiments you could do to put this in context. Imagine we did this with cops. Imagine we had police officers down there, like, Look, we know your departments are underfunded, but you can scramble for the cash and grab as many dollar bills as you can, and then you can buy some more gear, you know? Maybe you'll even get, like, a hockey goalie mask, and that might protect you from, from bullets and whatnot, some hockey goalie pads. Look, we're just trying to help you. I mean, this is better for, for you, right? You're going to get more cash out of it. You're going to get more gear as a result of it. This is like Hunger Games stuff, bro. What are we talking about here? Now, compare this picture with what we know about the consolidation of the U.S. economy during COVID, how billionaires have made trillions more and everybody else is struggling. I oftentimes think about that Rand Corporation study, which found that um, over the course of just a few decades, so like the post-World War II period until today, the top 1% has effectively stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. And actually now that number is over $50 trillion because 
this article came out like a couple years ago. And uh, what they say is if you just kept the income disparity and the wealth disparity that existed right after World War II, if you just keep that disparity, that ratio moving forward, what happens, excuse me, what happens is um, every person in the bottom 90% would have $1,144 more per month, every month for the rest of their lives. So there's your UBI right there. Your UBI was basically stolen from you because the owner class rigged the rules, rigged the game, and kept more of the income for themselves. And look, and, and it all comes back to corruption. The story always comes back to corruption. They gave money to the politicians. The politicians turn around and do them favors, give them subsidies, give them tax cuts, and have you know anti-worker policies, anti-bottom 90% or 99% policies. So this is where we are now. We're not, we're not even you, – you have the debate going on in the Senate where – Joe Manchin was like, I don't want to raise the corporate tax rate. Uh, I think that, you know, we need to be competitive around the world. And then they were like, well, maybe a billionaire's tax. And then, or no, it was Kirsten Sinema who didn't want to raise the corporate tax rate. And then it was Manchin when Sinema floated the billionaire's tax with the other Democrats. That's one she apparently would have gotten on board with. Uh, Joe Manchin was like, I don't want to do billionaire's tax. We're singling out individuals. So no corporate tax increase, no billionaire tax increase. No top marginal tax uh, increase uh, hike. And look at what's going on at the state and local level. Now, granted, you know, schools are funded with more local taxes than they are at the federal level, but it still illustrates a good picture of what this country's like. That everybody, people in the top 1%, the owner class, the corporations, the billionaires, they always win. And then... This is what actual real people are dealing with. Let's scramble for cash. Look, get the money so you can get some supplies. How about you just fund the schools fully so that they can have supplies? How about every teacher in this country should make six figures? How about that? I mean, it, it is kind of amazing, isn't it? It, it does speak, speak a lot about the values that our society has when – you know, the market makes it so that certain things um, might be a real skill and really important, and they get paid relatively well, So, like a surgeon, for example, certain kinds of doctors. Um, but then there are other things that are probably equally important that just don't have that high value because the way the market system works is there's just not as much value put on them, and more, different, more people can do that job, so they pay them less. But we can decide, we can choose as a society with the commons, with the public in mind, we can choose to venerate teachers and to have them paid phenomenally well and to understand that this is like a very noble and important job where they help shape the minds of the children for the next generation. I mean, in a world that made sense, teachers would make, I think Bernie had some proposal. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think his proposal was like, they need to make at least like 70,000 a year or something like that. He's right. Now I get it. 70,000 is a lot in like rural Wyoming, but shit, I'm more than happy to have my tax money. Even if you take it at the federal level, I'm more than happy to, to subsidize teachers. That's way better than 
spending money to bomb our ninth country, you know, or keep our 900 military bases around the world or bail out Wall Street again. So, man, this is dystopian stuff. Again, the most disturbing part to me is that not everybody's disturbed by it, that we've actually, we've grown such a thick skin and we're so callous that we just look at this like, yeah, this is, this is the stuff we do. Like, go look, a fun game in between periods at, at a hockey game. Hooray. Man. It's really a broken system, and this is a very clear illustration of it here. Okay. So Hillary Clinton um, lectured the left on how to win. This is not The Onion. This is dead serious. She released that master class thing, which is basically like a QVC infomercial for herself. And in it, she read the um, speech she would have given had she won. She was crying throughout it. Crystal and I talked about that on Crystal Kyle and Friends. I think the clip's up on YouTube. Um, But she also said, listen, Democrats win when we win in places we don't normally win. And in order to win in these places, you can't have, like, pure Democrats. You need, you know, ones who are blue doggish and like Joe Manchin. And uh, it's just an ironclad fact of reality. So then you had Claire McCaskill go on MSNBC, back up Hillary Clinton, Let's watch this, and then I'm going to rip their argument to shreds because even the fact that they're talking about this is the height of irony. I suspect you can relate to some of those comments, having to want, run and win in exactly the kind of place she's talking about, hard places for Democrats to win. I think she's also obliquely referring to people like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. You say, well, you can criticize Joe Manchin all you want, but if he doesn't win in West Virginia, then we don't have the Senate. Yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton pointing this out is really, really a big deal. And I hope that the progressive wing of my party takes it to heart. The power comes from a majority. The majority comes from the middle because we're not talking about places that are bright blue. We're talking about places where they do care whether or not parents feel like they have any control over their child's school. Forget about what specifically they're teaching. It's about understanding that in these times, parents, and a lot of these parents in the suburbs, women, mothers in the suburbs, came to Joe Biden because he was the candidate of the middle, not that he was the candidate of the extreme. And if we don't get that, if we spend all our time talking about the things that bright blue places want to focus on and not on the things that moderates want to hear, we are not going to hold the majority. And Mitch McConnell and either Speaker Donald Trump or Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, will completely blow up the last two years of Biden administration. And the things we really care about could really go by the wayside, God forbid, that Donald Trump get reelected to another term as president. So they're already using the fear of Trump to say, shut up, fall in line, and vote for Democrats. That'll do absolutely nothing. But let's talk about how hilarious this is. Claire McCaskill lost in Missouri to Josh Hawley. She's a Democrat. She was in office, 
and then she lost, and she's lecturing on how to win. Well, as David Dole, the humanist report said, hey, Claire, why don't you go talk to Katie Porter, who is in a swing district, and she ran on the left and won. Why don't you go talk to Sherrod Brown, who's in Ohio, a place where Republicans are dominating, and he won. And he won not being a centrist, corporatist, corrupt goon. He won by being more on the left. Why don't you go talk to Joe Donnelly, blue dog Democrat, who lost the same time Sherrod Brown won in the state right next door. And he ran on like, I'm like Ronald Reagan. He was trying to be Joe Manchin on steroids, and he lost. So Claire McCaskill, who just lost to Josh Hawley, so she's a loser, a loser. And Hillary Clinton, who just lost to Donald Trump, she's a loser, are lecturing the left on how to win. Did you know, in the last election, every Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won. Every Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won. Well, let me say that one more time, because I'm not sure that's landing with a lot of people. Every single Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won. The other thing that's hilarious about this is She's saying, hey, here's the things we have to do to win. And all those things, shockingly, are centrist, moderate, really corporate bullshit, right? Joe Biden is doing those things. The Democratic Party is doing those things. And right now, they're, depending on what poll you look at, either like two or three points down in the, in the uh, generic ballot, or they're 10 points down. And by the way, they need to win by like five points just to keep the numbers they have. So even if, they're, even if there's some polls where they're tied, that's still them being down because of the gerrymandering and the Republicans having a built-in advantage. So, Claire, they're doing the exact thing you and Hillary Clinton want, and they're getting their asses handed to them on a silver platter. If you were correct in your theory, then right now Biden would be at a 50% or 55% approval rating. And the Democrats would be plus five, at least in the, in the generic ballot. They're not, because you're wrong. And you've always been wrong. And they're bringing up the whole thing about, like, oh, teachers in the classroom and what happened in Virginia. What happened in Virginia is that um, Terry McAuliffe is more boring than watching paint dry. He has negative charisma. And all he did was run on Trump bad. That's it. Yes, he followed Glenn Youngkin down the culture war path, which is a mess, and he shouldn't have done that. But he also just ran on Trump bad. His, his ads were about Donald Trump. And ironically, at the end of her segment here, what does she do? She whips up the Trump fear again and does the same thing McAuliffe did that led to him losing. Guys, I don't know how to say this any more clearly. These people stand for nothing. These people believe in nothing. They believe in getting themselves back into power, and that's it. And I love how she says, look, if, if the Republicans win and Mitch McConnell has control, then we're really going to... Uh, not be able to get any of the things we care about. We're not able to get any of the things we care about because of you and Hillary Clinton and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. You are the ones who are blocking us. You are. You're the problem. We ha- the Democrats have the House. The Democrats have the Senate. The Democrats have the White House. And we're not getting universal child care. We're not getting universal pre-K. We're not getting expanded Medicare. We're not getting all drug prices lowered. Instead, they did a compromise of like, well, we'll lower 10 of them by 2025 or some shit. You're the problem. Look in the mirror. And that's the thing, Claire. You don't have the same values and policy beliefs that I do. Stop pretending like you're an ally who means well. You're not. You're corrupt. You're corporate. You serve industry. You serve corporations. And every now and then you sprinkle in a touch of like social change, like, I don't despise gay people. And you expect people on the left to say, queen, you're such a queen. 
You're such a queen. Listen, what do I care about? I care about Medicare for all. I care about unionization and the PRO Act. I care about a $15 minimum wage. I care about ending the wars beyond Afghanistan. I care about ending Iraq. I care about getting out of Syria. I care about all that stuff. These things really matter. These things are important. Don't pretend like, oh, I'm with you, but we can't do that. No, you're not even with me. You're not even with us. You're with Hillary. You are dyed-in-the-wool, neoliberal corporate hack. That's what you are. And again, I don't know how to say it any more clearly. You lost to Josh Hawley. You're a loser. Taking advice on how to win from you is like taking advice on morality from Adolf Hitler. Okay? I don't want to hear it. You're literally the last people we should be listening to. Hillary Clinton is the last person we should listen to on how to win. She lost the most layup election of all time. Homeboy was caught on tape saying, I grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait, like seven and a half minutes before the election, and Hillary still lost. She still lost. So whatever you say as the advice, the opposite is true. The opposite is what we should do. When were Joe Biden's approval ratings the highest? When he cut a check to people. He sent them free money in a COVID relief bill. That's when his approval rating was the highest. His approval rating was the highest when he did a a plethora of executive orders that reversed all of Trump's executive orders. That's when he was polling the highest. So in other words, when he was his most progressive is when he was polling his highest. When he was his most progressive is when he was polling his highest. That's not an opinion. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. Again, build back better. Go look at the bill. Every left provision that the left cares about polls incredibly well. Incredibly well. So what's your answer to that? You have no response to that. You have no response to that. If your theory was correct, since now Joe Biden has fully become the do-nothing corporate neoliberal Democrat that he is, if you were correct, right now he would be polling at 50 or 55%, the country would love him, and Democrats would be up in the generic ballot. That's not the case, because you're wrong. Joe Biden were to come out tomorrow and sign an executive order legalizing marijuana and sign an executive order abolishing student loan debt, his approval rating would spike at least five points, probably more than that. And that also would totally obliterate your case. But I'm sure you'd be right back out on TV lecturing and wagging your finger and saying, no, this is what you have to do to win, the opposite of what you just did, which made you more popular. You lost to Josh Hawley, a prep school prick fake populist. I don't want to hear it. Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, the saddest loss of all time, the easiest election to win. She lost. So... This is a conventional wisdom spewing center on MSNBC. And the conventional wisdom, as per usual, is dead wrong. Okay, next. I like this next story a lot. So here we go. Um, Donald Trump apparently was really, really, really pissed at Benjamin Netanyahu after Trump lost to Biden, and Netanyahu uh, congratulated Biden on the victory. This story is awesome. So The Hill says, Former President Trump blasted Benjamin Netanyahu, accusing the former Israeli prime minister of disloyalty while using profanity to criticize the former ally for his congratulatory message to President Biden following the 2020 election, according to an Axios report. Trump touted that he helped Netanyahu, now the opposition leader in Israel, in his own election efforts, reversed decades of U.S. policy in Israel's favor and supported Israel's claim to land that was seized in war while continuing to incorrectly claim the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him, reports the Associated Press. 
quote, the first person that congratulated Biden was Bibi Netanyahu, the man that I did more for than any other person I dealt with. Bibi could have stayed quiet. He has made a terrible mistake, Trump said, according to Axios. Netanyahu is not the first leader across the world to congratulate Biden, as Netanyahu waited more than 12 hours to do so, uh, and he followed up with a tweet that praised Trump, according to the AP. Trump told Axios he was shocked when his wife Melania Trump showed him the video of Netanyahu congratulating Biden. Quote, Netanyahu was very early, like earlier than most. I haven't spoken to him. Fuck him, Trump said, according to Axios. Fuck him. How dare he? This is hilarious for a number of reasons. First of all, did Donald Trump really think there was going to be personal loyalty on the national political scene, on the international political scene? No, Donald. It's about trying to keep a good relationship. This is what Israel's doing. Let me try to keep a good relationship, massage the egos of the leaders in America so that they continue to give me multi-billion dollar subsidies every year, fund Iron Dome even to the tune of more money than it even needs, allow me to continue with uh, illegal settlements and uh, endless expansion and slow-moving ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. So if fucking Mr. Potato Head won the election, Bibi Netanyahu would be on Twitter like, Mr. Potato Head is wonderful and we love him and it's great. Congratulations, Mr. Potato Head. Of course that's the way it works. Did you think there would really be like a personal loyalty, Trump, from Netanyahu? And Netanyahu came out and said as much. Apparently Netanyahu saw this story and somebody asked him for comment. And he was like, look, I like Trump. He did a lot for us, but uh, I care about uh, the relationship between Israel and the United States. So I respect uh, Joe Biden as well. And that's that. Yeah, of course. Of course that's what's going to happen. But Trump is so naive and so childish. He really thought that like there was some sort of personal affinity between the two of them. And... Like, what, he would argue for you to stay in office when you clearly lost? Like, what did you want? What did you expect? He could have, at the very least, stayed quiet. He could have stayed quiet while we figure out what the hell's going on. I love the fuck him part. That's the, that's the best part. Fuck him for acknowledging the reality that I lost the election. Fuck him. Now, by the way, um, Trump's actually wrong about something else, too. Trump did a lot for Israel and he, he was their partner in crime, quite literally, you know, um, moving the embassy. But, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that, what, Obama didn't serve Israel? Uh, George W. Bush didn't serve Israel? Oh, they served Israel. Believe you me, they served Israel. Under Obama, again, multi-billion dollar subsidies. We give them billions of dollars every year, and they have universal health care, and we don't. Why are we giving them that? It was Obama who originally gave them Iron Dome. You know, uh, the only thing Obama did, which was totally symbolic, was to abstain from a vote condemning the illegal settlement expansion at the U.N. That's all he did. And that was viewed as like, oh, scandalous. But he wasn't even like he was condemning it. He, he was just saying, well, we'll vote like president or something. We'll just vote like we're not going to block the other states from condemning Israel for uh, illegal expansion of settlements. That's all that Obama did. It was just the tiniest slap on the wrist you could ever imagine. But in terms of materially supporting them, yeah, I mean, they, in 2014, when they were Operation Protective Edge, when they were obliterating Gaza and killing Palestinian children, literally 80% civilians at least were killed, um, they, the Obama administration, during a, a temporary pause and ceasefire, rearmed Israel. So they can keep 
bombing babies. And by the way, what's going on with uh, Biden? It, it seems like business as usual on the Israel front. So, uh, of course, that's what's going to happen. And it's just hilarious to me that Trump really thought, like, I'll just, I'll give them whatever they want, and then what? They'll have some, they'll, like, support you over anybody else in the U.S., and they'll try to help overthrow an election or what? It's just it's hilarious. It just shows that on the Israeli side, for Benjamin and Yahoo and others, excuse me, it's all business. It's all like, let's, let's keep the status quo functioning because we got it really good and America's massively biased in favor of us and against the Palestinians. And on the Trump side, he's just such a naive child. He really thought there would be some personal thing that would override the way the system works. In a funny way, it actually shows his it helps explain his affinity for strong men like Bolsonaro and like Kim Jong-un, who famously said, we exchanged letters and we fell in love. Didn't he say something like that about Kim Jong-un? I guess he feels more like he could have, it's less business as usual with those countries. And he sort of, he wants to emulate the strong men and be like the strong men. So he sees other strong men and there's like a, narcissist loving narcissist angle to it and i could see how that would sort of make him lean more in that direction i could see how i could see where the affinity for strongmen comes from because he probably feels like he relates to them more whereas bb actually has a commitment to a system over the personalities and the personal um, relationships involved, you know, and that is a lot of Trump's foreign policy was just like, who's nice to me, who's not nice to me, whoever's nice to me gets favors, whoever's not nice to me doesn't, and it works like that in his administration, too, in terms of uh, his staff and, like, whoever was personally loyal to him, he would favor, whoever isn't, he won't. I mean, they said when, uh, with him running again in 2024, which he's almost certainly going to do, they say, oh, the only two requirements are personal loyalty, and the other one is you have to say that the 2020 election was illegitimate. So he values that over all else. It's just hilarious that he thought there was something deeper there with BB Netanyahu. Absurd. Okay, next. Fox News has done a lot of work um, to portray themselves as we actually care about the blue-collar worker. It's these elite liberals that don't. And so we're the the network of, of working people, real Americans. Well, they sort of undid whatever work they were attempting to do on that front. Um, Because here we have the show outnumbered, and one of the hosts flat out celebrates the layoffs of 900 people before Christmas. Maybe he'll fire himself. Go to CNN. 
I loved this, actually. I loved this so much. The productivity of those 900 individuals averaged two hours a day, even though they were paid for eight. And I understand the indelicate nature of this, but part of my role as a federal attorney when I was managing and acting director was terminating individuals, and I did it with the utmost respect and care. But I also had to do it with a lot of security measures in place. I love that for 900 people, he stayed safe, and he let them know that their theft was no longer tolerated. So for me, good riddance, and I feel bad that he's now having to capitulate to the other execs at his company and apologize for it. Sorry, guys, bye. For all of them, they're snowflakes. Wow. They're wow. probably millennials wow. and Zs. Yep. Very surprised. They need wow. to learn work ethics. That's Emily, it's tough. We're on the office. I mean, for those people on the call who are the exceptions These to what you accuse them of, they all have lawsuits. <laughs> I would Brian though. I mean, they do. I mean, if he accused them of not doing what they're supposed to be doing and all that, and they were receipts, that's going to be tough for him. Yeah, but this guy. I, I like the bravado. I, I, I like having the debate. I have his pockets are deep. To Brian's point, though, this guy in court documents, it was alleged that he wanted to staple someone to the wall yeah. or the door, whatever it was. I mean, this guy has some pretty big issues. I love Maybe they were safe from him. I really love it. from him. Or I'm going to have <laughs> 900 people losing their livelihood right before Christmas <laughs> during a pandemic. <laughs> I love this. Oh, you love this. Noted. Duly noted as to the kind of person you are. The network of working people. See, this is this is the mask slipping. The default assumption in right-wing media is to side with management, side with the owner class, side against working people, and whatever sort of BS rationalizations are concocted at that management level, they fall for a hook, line, and sinker. So 900 people losing their jobs, and there's no empathy, sympathy, concern for these people what are they going to do? Where are they going to find work? How are they going to pay the bills? What happens from here? Are they going to not be able to pay their car bill? Are they not going to be able to stay in the same house? Are they going to have to move? Is it going to uproot their lives and send them to a whole new community to build a whole new life? Do they have kids? None of that stuff factored in. None of it. And even some of the other Fox hosts were like, geez, you know, you're more hardline than I am on this. I mean, that says a lot, right? When all those people are right wing, but... One of them is just the worst. So I love the arguments. The arguments are, well, they're probably just millennials and Gen Z. So that makes it better, makes it okay. Yeah, I mean, like, who cares? Fuck young people, right? I don't like them because of, I'm sure they'd say, like, they're too woke or, you know, they don't work hard. I mean, she literally says they need to learn work ethic. Well, at the job, they were working, and now they're fired, and they don't have a job, so they can't work. So maybe if you're pro-work ethic, you should have been pro-them keeping their jobs. And then she really trots out the whole snowflake thing. This is the, like the whole, that whole dialogue has gone so out of whack, hasn't it? Snowflake is supposed to be for like somebody who can't take a joke. And so then they want to have somebody deplatformed or something because of a joke. And now they're using the term snowflake to say, ha ha. You lost your job right before Christmas? Snowflake. What? So you're going to blame the individual and 
act like there aren't larger systemic factors and like this isn't genuinely a hurtful thing. This is the same thing as getting offended at a joke. My instinct when somebody's offended at a joke is like, man, get over it. My instinct when somebody loses their job is, oh, shit, that's fucked up. Let's find a way to ameliorate this problem and get this person a new job or get them some financial assistance or whatever. Look, I, on the one hand, this is a really important segment because it shows they let the mask slip. They're exposing what they really are. Any sort of posturing is caring about the working class. is It's always bullshit from Fox News. It's always bullshit from Republican politicians, too. Even the fake populist types like Josh Hawley talked a big game about caring about workers, and then a vote came up for $15 minimum wage, and he was against it. Talks a big game about caring about workers, but then he also supports so-called right-to-work legislation, which is anti-union legislation, which keeps wages lower. They're all frauds, man. They don't care about you. They don't. Even the one issue where they nominally appear to be posturing for workers, tax cuts, so that, oh, workers can keep more of their own money. When you look at their actual legislation, the tax cuts are always targeted way more to the wealthy. And whatever tax cuts there are for regular people are temporary. So even on the one area where they try to, like, out-populist Democrats, they don't. And so here we are. Snowflakes, got to learn some work ethic. I love this. I love 900 people getting fired. Now, I guarantee you if that was one of the family members of this pompous prick, all of a sudden that tune would change. If it was, you know, her mom or her kid or whatever, if it was her, all of a sudden it'd be, woe is me, woe is me. This is an egregious harm. This is a terrible ill. But when it's somebody else, eh, who cares? They're probably millennials or Gen Z. They're young, so fuck them. What's the famous old saying? When somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Okay, next. So Joe Biden has, um, his administration has now confirmed that he's abandoning student loan debt relief. Watch this awkward back and forth with Jen Psaki. Student loan payment pause. I know um, it's not besides legislation that probably won't pass. What are some of the options that can help these people? Um, you're talking about the student loan payment pass that expires in February, just for, for clarity. So um, in the coming weeks, we will release more details about our plans and we'll engage directly with federal student loan borrowers to ensure they have the resources they need and are in the appropriate re- repayment plan. We're still assessing uh, the impact of the Omicron variant, uh, but a smooth uh, transition back into repayment is a high priority for the administration. A smooth transition back into repayment is a high priority for the administration. Yeah, Joe Biden promised at least $10,000 worth of student loan debt relief. Um, at one time it was 50. There was even one time he said, I'm going to eliminate your student loan debt. And now we're getting none of it. So he's eliminated like $2 billion or something. I don't remember the details. I think one of it was for one, one thing was for scam colleges. Another one was for veterans or something. Um, but there's over $1.7 trillion of student loan debt. And to abolish like 2 or $3 billion, you do the math on that. It's nothing. So I was reminded of credit to the Twitter account holding Biden accountable because um, they track Biden from a left-wing perspective. Um, there was an article in Business Insider recently, very recently. Meet an independent voter with $163,000 in student debt 
who left the Democratic Party after four decades because she felt betrayed by Joe Biden. Quote, I really felt he was going to help us with the student loan debt problem. Literally losing voters as a result of going back on your word on student loan debt relief. Here's another one. This is from NBC. Most black voters support eliminating student loan debt, new survey finds. A survey of registered black voters shows 40% would consider staying home for the next election if there's no action on student loan debt. 40% would consider staying home if there's no action on student loan debt. Joe Biden could eliminate it literally through executive order. He could eliminate it right this second if he wanted to do that. And if he were to do that, well, you win back that independent voter who said, I'm leaving the party after, because uh, they lied to me about student loan debt relief. And you guarantee that you don't have 40% of black voters considering staying home because you didn't keep your word. See, this is what we're talking about. Politics is not rocket science. If you deliver for the people, the people will deliver for you. Biden is not delivering for the people, so they're not going to deliver for him, and they're not going to deliver for the Democrats at the ballot box in the next election. And it's like we're sitting here watching the Titanic in slow motion crash into the iceberg, and, you know, people are giving all their opinions and their takes and how it's going to unfold in the play-by-play. It's not that complicated. Sign an executive order to abolish all student loan debt. Boom, your approval rating goes up at least five points. Sign an executive order to effectively legalize marijuana. Change it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 5. Boom, your numbers go up even more. Instead, they're doing this. I'm not even sure if Trump was in office he would do this. Because he'd probably fear, shit, well, if I make people start paying those student loan debts, start paying that student loan debt after that long pause, that might hurt me in the polls and in the election. Even Trump might not do this. Biden's doing it. This is beyond embarrassing at this point. There just there is zero imagination about what's possible to do. And there's zero will to do the right thing because the party is bought and owned by corporate America. And so they're serving that constituency, industry, big business, the wealthy, over the voters and the people. Well, there are consequences to that, and we're trying to warn you about them. But maybe they just don't care. They don't even care. Because, look, they have the White House, they have the Senate, they have the House of Representatives. They're not doing anything with it, and so they're going to lose it. So they just maybe they're just like, who cares if we lose it? Whatever. We're not doing anything with power anyway, so who cares? At least if, they probably think at least if we're in the minority, we can virtue signal about, oh, all the things we said we were going to do but didn't do. Well, now we're really going to do them, so vote for us, and then we won't do them again. Mm, man, this is so frustrating. Remember all those articles that compared him to FDR? He's the next FDR. My ass cheeks, he's the next FDR. FDR's rolling over in his grave at that comparison. Don't you ever say that. He's more like Barack Obama, and he's more like Bill Clinton. All the new Democrats are just that, neoliberal corporatists, and they're new Democrats. That's very different from a New Deal Democrat. Everybody who wrote one of those articles comparing him to FDR should be shot out of a cannon and launched into the sun. Okay.
So as the United States um, is doing nothing substantive at the moment when it comes to policy, no real groundbreaking ideas or bold steps in a different direction, as that's going on, there are other countries that are beginning to experiment with some really radical ideas. Now, I call them radical. I would argue they're actually much more common sense than radical, but you get the point. So first, let me show you um, a clip here discussing a move from the UAE, United Arab Emirates, uh, with their work week. The UAE is experimenting with a four and a half day work week. Let's watch and then we'll discuss. The United Arab Emirates moving to a four and a half work week, four and a half day work week. The government says that this is all in an effort to boost productivity and improve work-life balance. Now it's not four and a half hours, it's four and a half days. Here's Malcolm Johnson with a closer look. The changes go into effect for all UAE federal employees on midnight at the start of the new year. You can see the announcement just made in the tweet. It says Friday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday will all form the new weekend. Working hours will be eight hours a day, Monday through Thursday, and four and a half hours on Friday. It's unclear if companies in the private sector will follow suit, but a number of Muslim-majority countries, for example, Saudi Arabia, operate on a Sunday to Thursday week so Friday prayers can be observed. The new weekend structure is also expected to help the UAE align with other global powers on trade. Now, it's believed by some experts that shorter work weeks can actually lead to increased productivity and quality of life for all employees. A number of companies worldwide have already switched over to a four-day work week, and a number of countries like Iceland, Ireland, Scotland, Spain, and Japan are announcing plans for a pilot four-day work week. In the studio, I'm Malcolm Johnson. Back over to you. Uh, for everyone here, still waiting for that announcement here. Four would be better than four and a half, though. Yeah, but you got to take what you can get. I know. you got to take what you can get. I kept in that banter at the end to illustrate a point here, that even people who make decent money and have good careers are like, I would love that. So this is an issue where it's uh, basically, I would say probably the bottom 99% are like, let's do it. Let's rock and roll. Actually, I mean, that's not fair to say it like that. I don't know what a poll's at, but my guess would be like 55 or 60%. But there are people sprinkled in throughout the bottom 99% who are like, yeah, let's do that. So even people, you know, I don't know what they make, but my guess is at least like 200 grand a year, whatever this local news affiliate is for these people. They're like, I would love a four-day work week. There have been a number of studies at this point, and um, either productivity stays the same when you work fewer hours, or there's some studies where productivity increases when you work four days instead of five days. So, I mean, that says it all right there. If you could actually increase productivity and limit the number of hours worked, why would you do that? And listen, it, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you have an extra day off, you get more rest, you probably get more sleep, you handle whatever stuff you got to handle outside of work, you're able to take care of that stuff better than you would in a five-day work week. So you sort of have things more orderly. And then when you're at work, you can be more mentally sharp and actually focused on what you're doing. So it makes sense that you shorten the number of hours at work, but you increase the productivity. But look, even having the conversation from the productivity perspective it's not the end-all, be-all to me, because even if productivity were to go down a little bit, I still wouldn't care. I still think, as a matter of principle, it's better, because we need a better uh, you know, work-life, leisure-life balance. 
particularly in this country. I mean, we're being outlefted by the UAE when it comes to the economy, for Christ's sake. Think about that. The UAE is outflanking us on the left. I mean, this, and we don't even have every other developed country has um, paid vacation time by law, paid maternity leave by law. We don't have any of that stuff. We don't have paid vacation time by law. If you have a paid vacation time, it's just because your employer, through their own volition, decided we'll give people some, some paid time off. But we don't have a law about it. Other countries have laws about that stuff. So I would definitely move to a four-day work week. But it, we got another uh, country that's outlefting us in a very significant way. So take a look at this. This is in Barbados today. Government plans universal income for all. So um, let me explain that a little bit for you. Now, Barbados, in 1966, they gained a little bit of independence. There was still a commonwealth of the U.K., but they gained a little bit of independence. Well, now, just recently, within the past month, they got full independence. Um, so now, instead of the queen being the head of state, now it's the, either the prime minister or the president of Barbados. I'm not sure which, if they have a prime minister or a president. I think it's prime minister, but now that person is the head of state. So now they're fully independent in Barbados. And immediately, now they're talking about, we should probably do some UBI-type stuff. Look, small island nation, but credit to them for, you know, experimenting with an idea like this. So they want to call it the citizen's dividend. It's combined with an annual reverse tax credit, which together would make a sort of universal basic income. This was the most interesting quote in the article that I found. Get this, quote, Despite all the pressure from international agencies to target, uh, to quote, target, we hold the line on universality. That's why we restored free tertiary education for all. So in other words, I don't know if it's the World Trade Organization or the IMF or the UN or whoever, but there are international bodies that were pressuring them. Don't do means testing. Don't do universal. Do means testing. Because they're saying there's pressure from international agencies to target it, to do means testing as opposed to a universal approach. And they said, no, we're going to do universal. And that's why we also did restored free tertiary education for all. So in other words, it appeared like um, when they were a commonwealth, they were being held back from these more radical ideas for the economy. And now they're like, well, we're fully independent now, so we're going to try it the way we want to try it. And they have some really forward-thinking, intelligent ideas. So you have Barbados doing UBI. You have the UAE doing a four-and-a-half-day work week. You have pilot programs in all those different countries that they listed in that news segment. And what are we doing? <laughs> really is embarrassing, isn't it? I would implement both of these programs in the U.S. right now. I would do a UBI, and I would do a four-day work week. And then you sit back and watch those poll numbers on happiness shoot through the roof, because I guarantee you that would happen. Okay, let's continue. A Dutch man uh, was arrested for the most mind-boggling insane reason I've ever seen. It's not insane that he was arrested. It's insane that he was doing this. Take a look. Dutch man arrested after allegedly offering live COVID-19 virus 
for self-infections. He was literally selling people COVID-19 so they could infect themselves. Now, you might think, well, what is this? People that have like a sickness fetish or something, like they want to get sick because they have this weird perverse thing that they would like that? No. The idea is we'll give you the live COVID virus, and then that's how you gain your immunity. So you get sick, you get better, and then you have the immunity. Then you're good. You're safe. So there are people out there who are so anti-vax, they won't take any of the vaccines, but they will just willingly put the virus in their body, get sick, to hopefully recover so they have immunity. I have so many questions. First of all, why not just wait to get the virus then? I don't... Like, I, you should still try to avoid the virus, virus. If you happen to get it, then there you go. There's your opportunity, like, oh, maybe I'll beat it and get immunity. But more importantly, over 5 million people in the world have died from COVID-19. 800,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. This is not an anti-COVID strategy to get COVID. In fact, that is a pro-COVID strategy. You are way more likely to have terrible side effects or be hospitalized, or have long-term effects as a result of it, or die, than you are if you get the vaccine. Okay, do these people not even understand how vaccines work? That you trigger your body into making the immune response you need to defeat COVID if you actually get COVID, but you're not actually getting COVID from the vaccine. You are tricking your body into giving the immune reaction as if you have COVID, but you don't actually have COVID, so there's no way you would get anywhere near as sick from the vaccine as you would from actually getting the virus. I just, it's, it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that there are still people out there who think like this at this late date. I'll put the live virus in my body, which is way more dangerous because I want to avoid the way safer vaccine. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Even if you grant people every single case in that VAERS program, VAERS is where you go and report adverse side effects from the vaccine. Now, by the way, as I said, I don't even believe all the reports in there because they're people who are so com- such committed anti-vaxxers. They'll just go in there and make stuff up and put it in there. Oh, I had this response. Oh, I had that response. Oh, these are pe- probably some people in some cases haven't even had the vaccine. So I don't, I don't really buy that all of the stories in VAERS are legit. But let's say I grant you that. Let's say I, I say, you know what? You're right. All of those things are legit. They all happened. And so there are some people who have really terrible side effects from the vaccines and some people who may have died or whatever. Compare everything that happened in VAERS to everything that we know has happened as a result of COVID. Which thing mathematically is worse? Has the vaccine killed 800,000 Americans? Has the vaccine killed over 5 million people worldwide? Has the vaccine created anywhere near the number of side effects and symptoms as COVID has? We've gone down the list all the, I mean, shit. Some people get pink eyes. Some people get COVID toe is apparently a thing. Some people have incredibly sore throat, coughing nonstop. Some people get congested. Some people have a stomach bug. Some people sweat. Some people have insane chills. Some people can't breathe and end up dying. All the side effects from actual COVID are way above and beyond anything from the vaccine, even if you grant them every single crazy side effect from the vaccine that they say they had. So it is literally just a matter of math. It would still be safer to get the vaccine, even if every claim against the vaccine from in the VAERS program is true. 
So I don't I, like on what planet do people have people reason through this and thought I'm just going to give myself the live virus. So by the way, he was selling it for about 50 U.S. dollars, and uh, they arrested him and seized the stuff. And they're going to test it to see if it even is the virus. But you know, he was he was marketing it as oh, it includes all the you know latest variants and blah blah blah. There's some real psychos out there, man. Imagine ordering COVID-19 online to give it to yourself. That's crazy. All right, final story of the day. Some Fox hosts, or Maria Bartiromo, I should say, she spoke to a um, a Republican lawmaker, and they absolutely melted down at the idea over communism in the classrooms. This is really interesting. Take a look. You introduced this new uh, act, the uh, Crucial Communism Teaching Act. It would require high schools to teach students about the history of communism. The legislation has more than 60 co-sponsors in the House. Tell us why this is important as, uh, as communism uh, seems to be the topic du jour. Because if we are teaching in American schools the atrocities supposedly of the American agenda, how bad we, 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 we behaved as a country during slavery, during the Japanese, uh, to the Japanese during World War II, to the Native Americans, then we also have to teach our high school kids what the, the, the beauties of the system. We also we have to teach uh, the, 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 our kids what happened in the Soviet gulags, what happened in the China of Mao, what yeah, happened right. in the Cuba of Cal. We have to be teaching them because if we are te- and but we're not because you know 40% of the millennials and 30% of Gen Z believe that communism or socialism is noble and that this American well, agenda is evil that we're not the liberators we are the oppressors so if you're going to be teaching right. one part of history you have to teach another and you got to teach that this is still the best country on earth that the social mobility is here that we yeah. that, that that sometimes minorities are treated better in in American than in their own countries and I'm the best example yeah, it's a good point. I'm a brown girl from the hood and well yeah. it is and we got yeah, to teach it, them because otherwise we're duping well, them you know what and instead, they're telling us the progressives want to knock down statues and rewrite history. History is history. And we need to understand even the, the bad parts of history, the ills, to actually progress. I, I agree with you, Maria. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for- okay, that last point, Maria Bartiromo tripped herself up because she contradicted herself, contradicted the whole conversation and made the opposite point. So she brought up like, oh, we got to keep the statues up to teach the histories. What she's referring to is like the Confederate statues that, you know, a lot of the younger generation wants to pull down. Yeah, but so by that logic, by that logic, then why not have statues to Stalin in Russia, the former Soviet Union? Right. Like that's the point she's making is this is what I'm saying. She she tripped up and contradict herself and messed up her talking points because by her reasoning there. It's like, hey, look, even if bad things happen in history, history's history, we got to teach it, so we should keep the statues up. Okay, then why wouldn't you have statues of Mao and statues of Stalin in, you know, wherever they were? Why not keep them up? Right? I mean, the Confederacy tried to pull out of the United States. They were traitors. You know, they were like, we have no loyalty to the U.S. government. They're secessionists. And then we had a war that was fought. 
and slavery was at, at the centerpiece of that war. And by her logic of like, well, we got to keep the statues up to teach history. We got to teach the good and the bad. Okay, but if you're keeping the statues up to our bad guys, then why can't they keep their statues up to their bad guys? That would be the consistent logic. She didn't, she didn't follow the through line of that conversation and make the appropriate point. She made the opposite point of the point she was trying to make. Anyway, okay, so let's dive into this. Um, I, they're talking about we have to teach the history of communism. Now, what they mean is teach only the negative about communism. That's what they're saying. Um, now, uh, I got news for them. That, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> they act like this is some like novel idea. Like, why don't you teach that communism is bad? Why don't you teach about Mao and the Soviet gulags? I learned about Mao in school. I learned about the Soviet gulags in school. In fact, that's like part and parcel of the indoctrination process is like you only teach the good stuff of us and you only teach the bad stuff of the baddie countries. That is literally exactly what we already do. So if there's any problem in this country, it's the polar opposite to the one that they're pretending there is. Namely, we don't teach a nuanced approach to other, uh, you know, governments and other, and other economic systems and other political systems. We don't teach, like, the good and the, ba- the, good and the bad. Uh, we only teach the negative for the baddie countries, and we only teach the positive for us. So I, I, the fact that they made that argument is hilarious. Like, we should teach about Mao and the Soviet gulags. Mission accomplished. Already done. I learned about it, and I learned about it in liberal-ass New York. Now, to the, you know, to the broader point of, like, well, we should teach the good and the bad. I agree, but you guys actually don't agree. You only want to teach good in, uh, about the U.S., and you only want to teach bad about the foreign uh, countries and different economic systems and different uh, political systems. So, you know, look, if you're going to teach a fair, accurate um, history of Cuba, of course you can include all of the, the horrors of Castro and his treatment of gays, and all that stuff is, is legitimate. But at the same time, uh, you would have to teach that Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine that we don't even have yet that they created. You'd have to teach that they have universal health care, and we don't. You'd have to teach about Bay of Pigs and U.S. imperialism and the puppet Batista government, which was a brutal, repressive dictatorship that we propped up. You'd have to teach about U.S. sanctions and what we do to Venezuela and what we do to Cuba and how that absolutely impacts their economy. That's not to say that they don't have massive issues with how they do their central planning and the distribution of resources. And there's definitely claims of you know, they're authoritarian against the media and, and whatnot. Of course, there's plenty of criticisms there, and I'll make them. But I'm also going to be honest and say, hey, well, they also created a lung cancer vaccine that we didn't. You know? So, but again, they are not actually in favor of teaching good and bad. They want to just teach the bad for the baddies and just teach the good for us, who they view as we're the goodies. Um, then they say, well, 40% of millennials and 60% of Gen Zs aren't happy with our system, and they're like, they're interested in socialism and communism. Yeah, I wonder why. Maybe instead of judging, you should stop and try to soak in why maybe Gen Z and millennials feel that way. Could it be because these are generations that are loaded up to their eyeballs with debt and have no prospects for a better future and see a government that's totally uh, dead set against helping them in any meaningful way and instead that government serves corporations and billionaires and it's massively corrupt? Could that be why they're flirting with socialism and communism? That they look around and they see a system where... They can't get a job, and even if they can get a job, they don't make enough money to survive or get a house or start a family. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe the total and complete systemic failure and breakdown, maybe the, the seven wars that we're in or the 900 military bases or the endless bailouts of Wall Street and the fact we don't have universal health care and we don't have free college and we have student loan debt and we have low wages and we have no unionization and nobody has hope. Maybe that's why they feel that way. Instead, it's just judgment, like, oh, they're... They're flirting with, like, socialism and communism. Well, no shit, because they're in a 
capitalist hellscape, and they're looking around, and they have eyes. And then finally, look, you see, they let all the propaganda hang out at one point there when they talk about how, look, people are, we're the liberators, we're not the oppressors. And it's like, well, hold on, you just said we need to teach the good and the bad. So if you teach the good and the bad in the U.S. context, what you learn is, hey, sometimes we are the liberators, but oftentimes we are the oppressors. You can make the argument in World War II, we were the liberators. Nazi Germany was a true existential evil. We were the liberators on that front. War in Iraq, we're not the liberators. We're the bad guys. hate to tell you, we overthrew a government violently and forcefully that wasn't going to attack us and didn't have weapons of mass destruction, and we led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, maybe over a million, you know, when it comes to slavery, when it comes to the Native American genocide, when it comes to segregation, when it comes to... Uh, the fact that we militarily support 73% of the world's dictatorships. In many respects, we are the baddies. Look, again, that's not to say in every way we are. We're not. The New Deal was wonderful. The Marshall Plan was wonderful. Um, the Constitution is wonderful insofar as we actually abide by it. Um, World War II, like I said, wonderful. Vietnam, not so wonderful. We are the baddies in that respect. Murdering landless peasants with napalm and Agent Orange and raging, raising entire villages. So, look, I'm in favor. I actually am the number one proponent of you got to teach the good and the bad, teach everything. They're not. They're just pretending to be. Because in one breath they say we need to teach the good and the bad, and then in the next breath they say we're the liberators, not the oppressors. Well, it depends now, doesn't it? Um, and then finally they, they say this is the best country on earth. Really? So that, that's the factual claim? In what sense? They say, well, the social mobility is here. That's actually not true. We covered a story on the show maybe three or four years ago. There is more social mobility. So in other words, climbing that economic ladder so the next generation has a better chance than the current generation. There's more economic mobility and social mobility in Canada than in the U.S. So now the American dream is a Canadian dream. See, that's the thing. They play so fast and loose with the facts. The reality is they want to teach that the U.S. is good, full stop, and that the baddie countries are bad, full stop. And they're cloaking it with these nonsense comments of like, no, 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 we actually want to teach the good and the bad for everything. No, you don't, and you know you don't want to. All right, guys, we are done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.